Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. And today we're talking about Julius Caesar. We have some content warnings for this episode. There will be mentions of rape, sex between adults and minors, and relationships with large age gaps, discussions of sex, slavery, war, political violence, and riots, and murder. If you've listened to our previous episode, you would have noticed that we said we would be talking about Caesar and Nero today. But in the process of researching and planning this episode, we realized that we messed up and that we couldn't possibly fit Caesar and Nero into one episode and keep it a reasonable length. <laughs> Basically, we were just fools who forgot that we can't ever shut up long enough to get a reasonable length podcast episode out of the best of times. We are fools. We are fools. Hubristic fools. <laughs> Which is fitting for an episode on the ancient world. So we will just be talking about Julius Caesar today, and we will be bringing you an episode on Nero sometime in the future. We're not sure exactly when we'll be fitting what was supposed to be the second half of this episode into our schedule. This episode will hopefully be part of a series on queer Roman emperors and Julius Caesar, who's not queer and not an emperor. (laughs) Why is he he here? (laughs) We'll talk about him. We'll talk about him. Some people have posited that Caesar is queer. Some disagree. We're going to discuss. I think Alice thinks he's not, though. But by the time we've researched someone and decided that they're not gay, we've researched them, so you have to go through this too. (laughs) Yeah, that's basically it. It was too late to work out. We do have an episode that's a broad introduction to Roman male sexuality, and I would encourage you to listen to that episode before you listen to this episode. But if you don't want to listen to that episode or you've heard it before and forgotten some of it and you'd like a refresher, I will give a quick overview of Roman attitudes to male sexuality. My main source that I used in researching both our episode on Roman male sexuality and this brief introduction was Craig Williams' book, Roman Homosexuality. So if you want to read more about Roman homosexuality, that provides a very good overview of what information we have and what primary sources that came from. And I will post a few other sources on our blog as well. There's definitely a part of my mind here which I should have silenced and did not that is saying (laughs) homosexuality. I'm thinking of, like, putting at the top of my, like, Greek fan blog, no robo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I like that. (laughs) All right, now please list the places that it's okay for a man to put his penis for me. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Roman understanding of sexuality is based basically solely around where you're putting your penis. One person is the active partner who is penetrating another who is usually called the passive partner. And that's basically the only way that sex works from a Roman perspective. Allowing yourself to be penetrated and be the passive partner was seen as taking on the feminine role and as something that was inappropriate for Roman men. So if you were the passive partner, you were not exercising control over your own desire to be penetrated and also control over whoever you were having sex with, failing to act as befitted a Roman man. Specifically a Roman man, because they linked being the passive partner and being a feminine with being foreign, particularly being Greek or from what we now call the Middle East. And stereotypes linked with that also extend to um, not controlling your desire for other things, from eating and drinking too much to spending too much money or, you know, leading an extravagant lifestyle, and also to sexual desire for either gender. Having too much sex with women can be used kind of in the same breath as an insult as being the passive partner with men. Okay. Focus on your appearance and, you know, too much interest in how you looked was also associated with these same kind of effeminate stereotypes. And all of these things are very common political attacks and, you know, attacks in court that Romans use against each other. And this whole dichotomy between having an active partner and a passive partner, and that being a masculine partner and a feminine partner, also extends to the Roman understanding of marriage. And so in mentions that we have of male-male marriage in Rome, they'll always depict one man as being the bride who is emasculated and much more shamed and mocked than the man that they depict as the groom. In the Roman sources that we have, exclusive attraction to any gender is almost never referred to. So while sometimes people are talked about as preferring men or preferring women, 
it's almost never mentioned that one person is exclusively attracted to men or exclusively attracted to women. And for that to be mentioned is notably unusual. I know of only one example. They like to debate just, you know, for fun, which gender is better to sleep with or have relationships with or whatever. But generally, the peak of attractiveness was considered to be young men. We see a similar thing in ancient Athens with the institution of pederasty, which is the model of relationships between an adult male citizen and a younger man or boy who's also a citizen. And they also idealize the beauty of young men. When I say young men, just, you know, to be clear, we're generally talking about probably teenagers who have reached puberty, but not yet fully adults. Unlike in Athens, however, pederasty in Rome was not condoned, as that would require a future Roman citizen or a future Roman man to be penetrated because it's assumed that a younger man will be the passive partner. And it was actually illegal to penetrate any Roman citizen who wasn't your wife. So the appropriate setting for Roman men to find sexual partners outside of their marriage was with slaves, foreigners, or sex workers. And sex workers are not Roman citizens, just... If a Roman citizen became a sex worker, they were basically considered to have forfeited that right to not be penetrated. Okay. By degrading, and I'm doing air quotes here, themselves to the position of a sex worker. Okay. And, like, also you'd lose literal legal rights. Yeah, if you allowed yourself to be penetrated, you did lose legal rights. Yeah. What a weird dystopia. True. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many scholars and just, like, misc books about Rome that talk about how Rome was much freer in its kind of sexual mores than we are just because they allowed some forms of homosexuality and how they had less hang-ups than we did about sex because, like, oh, but they had frescoes of people having sex just on their walls. But they're just, like, so messed up about sex. Yeah. Also, I feel like a lot of people's kind of like, oh, look how free they are about sex. It's like passages in Suetonius or whatever, where people are talking about like, oh, and then freeborn women were running through the streets being defiled or whatever, where it's like, but that's just propaganda about how bad that kind of thing was. Yeah, that's just an old man yells at clowns situation. <laughs> <laughs> Much of Rome is an old man yells at clouds situation. Suetonius is definitely an old man yelling at a cloud. The Senate is definitely old men yelling at clouds. <laughs> That's true. I mean, the auguries, right? Like, yeah, that's literal true. Clouds literally, are here. There's definitely an old man literally yelling at clouds going to come up as a key point later in Caesar's life. <laughs> I hate this society. <laughs> I'm sorry. So basically, in brief summary, Roman men can penetrate basically what they like within the realms of it not being other Roman citizens, but they should never allow themselves to be penetrated or their masculinity will be compromised. Finally, I just wanted to add, it's difficult for us to say if there was any sort of queer subculture or queer identity in Rome. There was already a place in the dominant culture for men who were attracted to men, so we're not going to find a subculture of men who are attracted to men. There wasn't a place for men who did want to be penetrated by men, and perhaps they had some sort of shared identity, but we have no primary sources from men who are willing to admit that or who write about their identity in that way. So with that out of the way, I'm now going to give a brief biography of Caesar before we go into a detailed discussion about his sexuality. So we have a few main ancient sources for Caesar's life. We do have some primary sources from while he was alive including writings by Caesar himself. Uh, he wrote books about his time serving as governor of Gaul, and he also wrote an account of the civil war in which he fought. In which he caused. <laughs> which he <laughs> caused, see. fought, and fought in. <laughs> and also a very useful source from during Caesar's lifetime is letters from his fellow politician Cicero. We also have ancient sources mostly from 100 or 200 or so years after Caesar's death, which drew on primary sources that we no longer have, but which we can use as secondary sources. Uh, the most comprehensive of these is Suetonius, who was born almost 100 years after Caesar and wrote The Twelve Caesars, which is biographies of the leaders of Rome, beginning with Caesar and working through the subsequent emperors. Were they all called Caesar? Um... Caesar effectively becomes a title. Okay, cool. Yeah. We also have Plutarch, who was alive around the same time as Suetonius and wrote about Caesar in his work Parallel Lives. So he 
compares two people in biography, and he compares Caesar with Alexander the Great. So his image of Caesar is really about kind of the great general image of Caesar. So does he love Caesar and Alexander, or does he not? (laughs) He's not, like, absolutely pro-Caesar, but he is focusing on this image of Caesar as a general, and so he doesn't give us as much information about Caesar's personal life than Suetonius does. Suetonius' goal is basically just to tell us everything anyone has ever said about Caesar, be that true or false (laughs) or very thorough. Just any fact or fiction he can get his hands on, he um, gives us. I don't know if that's useful or not. On the one hand, it means it can be hard to pull out the facts. On the other hand, it does mean we know all the gossip that was circulating about Caesar in his lifetime and all the things that people were thinking about him and his reputation. So, you know. Good and bad. But yeah, you have to take everything he says with a grain of salt, basically. We also have Cassius Dio, who was a Greek historian writing a history of Rome about 250 years after Caesar's death. So Julius Caesar was born in 100 BC in the Roman Republic. Rome is not an empire yet. He was born into a patrician family, so one of Rome's kind of elite families, but not a particularly prominent one at that time. I'm not going to go into much detail about his early life because we don't have time, but he had a very successful early political and military career. And in 59 BC, so when he is 41, he stood for consul, which is the highest political office in the Roman Republic. So far. So far. (laughs) (laughs) Two consuls were elected every year to prevent one man from holding too much power individually. So far. Caesar's fellow consul was a conservative politician called Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus, and men like Bibulus aimed to conserve power in the hands of the senatorial elite, while Caesar and his political allies, most important to remember being Gnaeus Pompeius, who we generally call Pompey. Ah, Pompey. Pompey, yeah. I've heard of this man. (laughs) Yeah, so Caesar formed an alliance with Pompey and a third man named Crassus, And they looked for political support to the broader populace, and so they used policies like debt relief and grain dolls and land grants to try and appeal to that support base. So Bibulus and his allies were determined to prevent Caesar wielding any real power as consul, and this culminated in Bibulus declaring every day a public holiday to prevent (laughs) laws being passed. Was that, like, just for the politicians, or was that, like, everybody gets a day off? So there are basically two types of days in Rome. There's, um... Days when you're allowed to do things, and days when, nah, because of God. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Religious days when you can't do stuff, and days when you can do stuff. And he declared every day a religious day when you can't do stuff. So some things can go on, but I think things like trade and convening the senate these things can't occur i know that bad but also good. yeah <laughs> that's what i was thinking. i like to not go to work i was like imagine if every time there was like instability in our government we couldn't go to work so what i what you're saying is what if we couldn't go to work yeah <laughs> <laughs> to be clear it was normal to declare public holidays to undermine your political opponents it wasn't normal to do it for the whole year <laughs> This is very funny to me. politicians are petty. Politicians are petty. Caesar ignored Bibulus's decree, and I assume that a lot of people ignored Bibulus's decree because it's frankly ridiculous. Yes. So Caesar ignored Bibulus. He continued to pass laws, and a lot of them he passed through violence and intimidation and various illegal means. Bibulus eventually, in anger, refused to leave his house for the rest of the year, claiming that he had seen bad omens that... Suggested it would be unwise. Were they clouds? Uh, thunder was one of his own. So, <laughs> yeah. has a cloud. Or maybe has a cloud. I told you old man has a cloud up here. I don't know how old Bibulus was. <laughs> He's like spiritually an old man. Yeah. Old enough to yell at <laughs> Yeah. So, this gave Caesar free reign to kind of do what he liked because he just ignored Bibulus's decrees that politics couldn't continue. Also, being like, fine, I'm going to stay in my house is very rarely a wise political move. Like, I mean, I guess it means that you might not die, but it means that you quickly become completely irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, I think it was partly that Bibulus did feel unsafe, and Bibulus was at one point injured in a riot by a crowd of Caesar's supporters. But yeah, it wasn't a good political move. So yeah, Bibulus is hiding in his house and observing the omens. <laughs> <laughs> yelling at clouds, yeah. Yelling at clouds. We're yelling familiar. Clouds. 
And so Caesar just passes a bunch of laws that benefit him and benefit Pompey and benefit his supporter base and benefit Crassus. So notably, Caesar made himself governor of Gaul for the next five years. As governor of Gaul, he had control of a large portion of Rome's army, and he also had immunity from prosecution for the general illegality and violence of his consulship, where he ignored his colleague. So by the end of 59 BC, Caesar had cemented himself as a champion of the people and also as an enemy of the Senate. The senator Cato, for example, hated Caesar so much that he refused to mention any of the laws passed by Caesar because he didn't want to have to say Caesar's name in public. So Caesar went off to Gaul. I'm not going to talk about what he did in Gaul, but basically he was very successful militarily and in getting more support from his army and things like that. While Caesar was in Gaul, Pompey was also growing in power. He became governor of Spain, so he had control of a lot of Rome's armies too. In 50 BC, he said, in whatever part of Italy I stamp my foot on the ground, armies will spring up. So he was very powerful, very confident in that. So Pompey said that? Or Caesar? Pompey said that. Okay, Pompey. Pompey said that. Crassus died. By Crassus. By Crassus. And Pompey eventually began to seek his own support base among the conservatives in the Senate, separate from Caesar's more populist support base. Um, so the conservatives in general, are they on Caesar's side or Bibolo's side? Bibolo's side. So they're okay. trying to keep power for the Senate. Yeah, okay. And Caesar's trying to get power from the people. So he wants to appeal to the people so the people will, in turn, vote for him and vote for his laws. Caesar is the populist one. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So what had been an alliance between Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus became a rivalry between Caesar and Pompey. Who both have large armies. Who both have large armies, yes, that's correct. Cool, I see about this starting a civil war situation. (laughs) Yes, you see why a civil war is coming. Pompey knew that Caesar would want to become consul again, and so he began to pass laws to ensure that Caesar would have to return home to Rome if he wanted to stand as consul. A governor couldn't bring their army into Rome, so he wouldn't be able to bring his army with him for any protection, and he'd be open to prosecution for his previous crimes that we've mentioned. Caesar obviously didn't want to do that. And fearing that this conflict would lead to civil war, and that Caesar would just march on Rome with his army... In 50 BC, the Senate ordered both men to lay down their commands. Reasonable. Yeah, reasonable, reasonable. Pompey refused because he saw Caesar as a threat to the state. So Caesar refused, and then Caesar was declared an enemy of the state. Okay. This isn't gay, but it's quite interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Caesar's in Gaul at this time, and he's quite close to the border of Gaul and Italy, which is marked by the Rubicon River. Ah, But most of Caesar's armies are further away in further off parts of Gaul, and he's got just one legion with him. But on hearing that he's been made an enemy of the state, rather than taking the time to muster his armies from the various parts of Gaul, as the Senate expected him to, giving them time in turn to muster their forces, Caesar's at a party, and he fakes sick, sneaks out of the party, and with that one legion, he gets into a chariot and he crosses the Rubicon. Okay. And Caesar entering Italy with his army is illegal, and this amounts to a declaration of war. I'm just imagining whoever was hosting the party, like, hearing that Caesar was in Rome, like, six hours later, being like, (laughs) he said he was sick. (laughs) This is not the only instance I'm aware of Caesar faking sick and sneaking out of a party for military reasons. (laughs) (laughs) He had some kind of chronic illness, and we're not clear what it was. A bunch of people have tried to diagnose him. Oh, okay. Potentially epilepsy. Okay. Potentially just very severe migraines. I read one source which said he had a parasitic tapeworm living on his brain. By sort of like a modern scholar (laughs) making stuff up. (laughs) I'm sorry to that scholar. I didn't read that article in detail. I don't know anything about tapeworms. Maybe it's true. (laughs) If so, that's probably the most powerful tapeworm in human history. (laughs) That's probably true. That was probably a like inappropriate statement in tapeworm history. True, true, true. So, he marches on Rome. Pompey expected Caesar to take time to muster his forces, and so he's caught by surprise, and he's really unprepared for this. Senator Marcus Favonius turned to Pompey in the hastily convened meeting of the Senate, and said that now would be a great time for him to stamp on the ground, and those armies to spring up. (laughs) But instead, Pompey and about half the Senate fled Rome. Okay. So Caesar marches into Rome relatively unopposed, 
He tells the remainder of the Senate to just continue governing, and he goes off to fight a civil war against Pompey. But not in Rome? Pompey's armies aren't in Rome. Okay. Okay. Pompey's taken his armies with him when he's left Rome, and he's also got some armies in Spain, because he is governor of Spain. That's probably reassuring to the people of Rome. Yeah, that probably is. It's true. Anyway, carry on. I'm not going to go through the civil war in detail. But Pompey and his forces were ultimately defeated about 18 months later at the Battle of Pharsalus in Greece. Pompey fled to Egypt, where, hoping to curry favour with Caesar, the advisors of the pharaoh Ptolemy murdered him. According to Plutarch, Caesar arrived a few days later, and when they presented him with Pompey's head, he burst into tears and had Pompey's murderers put to death. Okay. And Caesar always maintained that he would have been willing to avoid the war if Pompey had been willing to cooperate. And, you know, if Pompey had laid down his army when they'd been ordered to, then Caesar would have laid down his army and it would have all been fine. Sure. Yeah, you can decide for yourself whether you believe Caesar or not. Following that, Caesar remained in Egypt for a while. He assisted Ptolemy's sister Cleopatra with her rival claim to the throne against her brother. They very likely had a relationship. And a babo. And also a baby, who Caesar never acknowledged, but was named Caesarian, so, you know. Has to be legit. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't just do that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Caesar defeated the last of his opponents, which was uh, Pompey's two sons, in 45 BCE, and after that he was named dictator of Rome for 10 years. The position of dictator did have historical precedent in Rome. It was something that they named someone dictator in times of instability to just kind of get things back in order. But it was usually only held for six months, and being dictator for 10 years was totally unprecedented. Caesar used his position as dictator to try and kind of deal with some of the instability caused by the war and economic problems and so forth, and also to strengthen his hold on power and give powerful positions to his supporters. In February of 44 BCE, during a public festival, Caesar's right-hand man, Mark Antony, offered him a crown and the kingship of Rome. Romans are very, very against the idea of kings. Rome had been a republic for hundreds of years and legendarily driven out their kings before that, and they were very invested in the idea of not having one man have supreme power. I feel like it's kind of a technicality once he's dictator for 10 years, frankly. I think many Romans in 44 BCE would have agreed with you there. Anyway. (laughs) I mean, right until the end of the Julio-Claudians, they're pretending that they don't have a, like, one-man leader of Rome still. Mm -hmm. It took a long time for the propaganda machine to gradually transition from, you know, oh, no, I'm just doing this for the good of the state. I'm not better than any of you two. We are the imperial family. (laughs) Okay. And Caesar is definitely still pushing the, you know, I'm just dictator for the good of the state. We just need to get things back in order kind of line. There's a lot of, like, emperors being like, oh, I don't want these powers. I'm, like, you know, getting rid of this in the Senate, having to go through this, like, play of being like, please, please be our dictator. We need you so much. And they're like, oh, I guess I will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. So by this time, Caesar already has command of the armies and he's already got control of the public treasury. But Mark Antony offers him the crown and he rejects the crown and he says, no, there's only one king in Rome. And he offers the crown at the temple of Jupiter. And Caesar made very, very sure to have his rejection of the crown and the subsequent offering noted down in the public record. Totally irrelevant question, but why did Mark Antony come and offer him kingship? So it's probable and quite likely, I think, that Caesar set Mark Antony up, either because Caesar wanted to have an opportunity to publicly reject the crown and be able to say, no, I'm not king, look, they offered me kingship, and I said no, or because Caesar was trying to kind of test public opinion. So he did this at a public festival, there was a crowd gathered, and they all saw it happen, and he was kind of seeing how would people react if I was offered a crown, would they be happy or would they be angry. The crowd was not enthusiastic when he was offered the crown, and maybe if they had been, he would have said yes. I love like, let's just go wing me becoming king. (laughs) See how it goes. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, Mark Antony was an ally of Caesar. So maybe Mark Antony was just trying to curry favour with Caesar, but quite likely Caesar set this whole situation up. So he wasn't made king. Move on. Do you think he like put it on in private though? I was like, mm, yeah. <laughs> yes. Looking good. <laughs> Can't see my bald patch now. <laughs> Caesar was bald and he was very embarrassed about being oh. bald. Around the same time that he rejected the kingship, however, he was pronounced dictator in perpetuity. Right. 
Not at all, King. It is not a different thing. The combination of these events and Caesar's growing power was probably the last straw for many senators. They began to conspire against him, and on the Ides of March in 44 BC, Caesar was killed in the Senate. He was stabbed 23 times by a whole number of senators. Presumably it was like the Orient Express and they all took turns. I think it was a bit like that. They, they felt that there couldn't be one murderer. Yeah. yeah. This is a trope of murder yeah. throughout history. Yeah. yeah. But presumably max 23 senators. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Suetonius says there were 60 involved in the conspiracy, but obviously, yeah. you know, a large number of them chickened out. <laughs> Or, you know, it's just hard for 60 people to stab a guy. That's true. Cicero was upset that he wasn't invited. Oh, I hate Cicero so much. I'm glad he dies. (laughs) They all die. Look, once you've had to translate Cicero as an undergrad, you hate Cicero. You know, no hard feelings, nothing personal, but consider using a a full... (laughs) Consider ending a sentence for once in your miserable life. So, I noticed that he's dead and still not gay. So Caesar is dead. I skipped over the gay stuff so we wouldn't have to rehash it when I got to the gay section, which we're now in. So I'm going to end the biography there. And we'll pick that up in the next episode in this series when Eli will be talking about Nero. Now we can discuss the queer stuff. Caesar's contemporary, Caius Scribonius Curio, described him as, quote, every woman's man and every man's woman, according to Suetonius. Okay. But there are really only two main stories about Caesar having relationships with men. One is a brief mention in Suetonius that Mark Antony accused Caesar's successor Augustus of sleeping with Caesar in order to gain power. This is one line in Suetonius. Suetonius doesn't even seem to take it seriously. I'm not aware of any modern scholar that's given it any time. And it appears to just be, you know, a political attack. And it's in a whole list of various political attacks that Augustus faced throughout his life. So that's one of the relationships with men that I think we can discount pretty easily. The other story is about Caesar's relationship with Nicomedes of Bithynia. This better be way better than the first one, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) I was going to say, that sounds like it had more weight. Well, we're going to talk about it a lot more, and people do talk about it a lot more. There's a lot, it's more than one sentence. All right. right. it's also recounted by Suetonius, and it's also mentioned briefly by Cassius Dio. So when Caesar was about 20 years old, he was sent on a diplomatic mission early in his military political career to Bithynia, which is in modern-day Turkey, mm-hmm. on the north coast of Turkey. He spent longer than expected or than necessary there, and not long after leaving, he returned again. This led to rumours that he was sleeping with Bithynia's king, the much older Nicomedes IV. Why did they leave immediately to he's sleeping with the king, not he's sleeping with literally any other person in this city? I don't know. Maybe it's because he was sleeping with the king. Yeah, like they must have chosen him for a reason. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. So according to Suetonius, these rumors started from Roman traders who were going to Bithynia and they were seeing Caesar sharing a couch with the king and seeing Caesar going off to the king's bedroom at night and... They went to the zoo together. <laughs> what? Did they go on dates? Oh, I see. Oh, I see, I see. Oh, uh, we don't know of them going on dates, but maybe they went on dates. Um, <laughs> why, were, why were the traders in, in the palace? Because they were foreigners in Bithynia, and so they were, you know, taken to dinner. Okay. It's okay. just a hospitality thing, you know? I okay. think you're imagining, like, market traders, and we're talking about, like, fine silk traders who are very wealthy and who like travel and stuff yeah Yeah. i was just imagining like people coming with their caravans and i was like why are they seeing their dinners what's going on the store (laughs) yeah maybe yeah merchant might have conveyed it better i don't know yeah anyway (laughs) these like pretty important men okay who are being entertained at the palace and they see caesar there with nicomedes okay so caesar being the younger man out of him and nicomedes was assumed to be the passive partner in this relationship they were supposedly having. So, what are the sexual norms of Bithynia? <laughs> do we know? What do we know about Bithynia, Alice? I don't know much about Bithynia, and that's a very good point that nobody looked into in any scholarship that I read. That's sort of a thing that happens where, like, like for example, with Greece, there's a lot of talk about how, like, this might have been 
imported from the East and Eastern religions, but then, like, not really any talk about what specific beliefs or norms in the East mm. were. And I don't mm. know if it's just because we don't really have a lot of sources for, like, Bithynia outside of Caesar going there one time mm. and things like that, or if people are just messing up. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That would be a good thing to look into, but not something that I looked into because it didn't occur to me because nobody else had done it. Whoops. <laughs> um, the first specific mention of these rumours that Suetonius gives us, as opposed to just vaguely saying there were rumours, is from a man Caesar was prosecuting in court called Dolabella. Seems unbiased. Yeah, I mean, Dolabella is going to be biased here. Dolabella is out to attack Caesar. I love his name. Mm. It is a good name. I like it a lot. Yeah. And Dolabella referred to Caesar as the Queen's rival. And he was the first of many of Caesar's opponents to attack him on this ground. And Suetonius provides a very gratuitous list that opens with, you know, I'm not going to talk about the rumours in any detail. I will pass over this and this and this and this <laughs> goes on with this whole list. Because that is the sort of gossip that he is. The scholar Josiah Osgood, who doesn't believe that Caesar and Nicomedes had a relationship, speculates that it was Dolabella who invented this rumour. Caesar was married quite young to a woman that he seemed genuinely quite devoted to. He had a very successful career, and Osgood suggests that, you know, this was kind of the one thing Dolabella could find to build something out of to attack him on. He points out that in reality, Caesar may have had other very viable reasons for lingering in Bithynia. For one thing, he was only 20, he probably hadn't travelled that much before, and, you know probably just thought it was quite exciting to see the world. And for another, he could have been cultivating Nicomedes and other Bithynians as political allies. He did continue to advocate for Nicomedes in Rome later in life and also for Nicomedes' daughter. And other Bithynians also recognised Caesar as their patron. But nonetheless, the rumours followed him for the rest of his life. His own soldiers, when he was celebrating his conquest of Gaul, taunted him with the chant, Caesar conquered Gaul, but Nicomedes conquered Caesar. Did he just take that? No, no, he did not oh, like that okay. at all. So it was traditional when generals were celebrating a military triumph for soldiers to jokingly insult them. Oh. That was the norm. Okay, I as Australian can kind of understand that, I guess. That seems like a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did not expect Roman culture to be relatable today. <laughs> but here I we are. Know, the part where he was like, no more work for the rest of the year. I'm going to my house was pretty <laughs> <I> True. true. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so it was traditional for soldiers to insult their generals in this kind of context, but uh, Cassius Dio notes that this chant in particular enraged Caesar, and he took an oath saying that it wasn't true, which only served to make people think it was more likely to be true. So hang on, it's traditional for people to do this. Was this particularly out of line? Like, was this an... It was this, like, overstepping it for things you'd say about your general when you're, like, heckling him at his victory party? No, I don't think so. It's just that it upset him for some reason. It upset him for some reason. Some modern sources will give you the impression that the issue here was that Caesar and Nicomedes were in a same-sex relationship, and that was what his opponents were attacking him on. Adrian Goldsworthy, who wrote a biography of Caesar in 2006... For example, writes on the topic, quote, the dislike of homosexuality appears to have been fairly widespread. What? <laughs> yeah. Citation needed, Adrian. <laughs> yeah, that's what Adrian said. Later, when talking about Caesar's many relationships with women, which we're not going to go into detail about here, but he had lots. It's not gay at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, Goldsworthy suggests that they were undertaken in part to dispel the rumours about Nicomedes. Which fails to recognise that to a Roman, having many affairs with women wouldn't dispel rumours about being passively penetrated by a man, since both fit into ideas of kind of immoderation and giving in to lust. So why doesn't Adrian know who's talking about? <laughs> I don't know. To continue to roast Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, sorry Adrian. Um, he also, with little ground, comments that, quote, It is absolutely certain that homosexuality did not play a part in the rest of Caesar's life. End quote with the argument that if there were other homosexual relationships in Caesar's life, then surely his political opponents would have latched onto those as well. I mean, when you've twisted Roman understandings of sexuality to the extent that all homosexuality is bad, like, sure, that argument makes perfect sense. Yeah, it follows from his previous statement, but his previous statement was wrong. If Caesar had been engaging in homosexual activity with sex workers or with slaves in which he was the active partner, nobody would have said anything about it because that was totally normal in the Roman mind. So this may have gone on in Caesar's life, and we'll never know. 
Okay. Goldsworthy's misunderstanding of the whole situation highlights the need to talk about Roman sexuality in its Roman context rather than interpreting it through modern ideas about sexuality. I think that's something we need to keep in mind when, for example, you'll find a bunch of listicles on the internet that will say Julius Caesar in a list of ancient Romans who were gay. Which, you know, you need more context than that. You can't just say that. I mean, listicles aren't famed for having context. (laughs) That's true, that's true. It's not a feature of the genre. (laughs) I mean, the impression I'm getting is that if you take men who sleep with men as your requirement, your single requirement for calling someone gay, you would call most men in ancient Rome gay. That's the impression you have given me. Yeah, as I said, there is um, no example I'm aware of of an ancient Roman man who explicitly, exclusively prefers women. So they're all gay. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Professional (laughs) opinion. Yeah. There you go. No, I think there are some who uh, don't sleep with anyone. Oh. Oh, well, they're ace, so they can be in the podcast too. Why aren't we talking about them? I don't know. I'll go and read. I feel like I've read that somewhere. I'll have to follow it up. Okay. So what the relationship was between Caesar and Nicomedes, I would say we can never actually know. It's unfortunately common as the final word in discussions about the ancient world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so neither Suetonius or Cassius Dio, who are our sources of this, reported as objective fact. They both reported as, you know, these are rumours that were spread. Plutarch mentions Caesar going to Bithynia, but doesn't mention Nicomedes at all, doesn't mention any suggestion of a relationship. But as I've mentioned, Plutarch gives little time to Caesar's love life in general. Modern scholars pretty much all consider it a political rumour that can't be proven or disproven. That seems fair. Yeah. Like, I know that I'm very biased and want everything to be as gay as possible, but unfortunately that does seem fair. Yeah, yeah. The main argument for why it might be true is what has been called the no smoke without fire argument. So Caesar's political enemies could have chosen to mount any number of character attacks against Caesar. For example, calling someone a drunkard was a common political attack, but Suetonius quotes Cato going so far as to say Caesar was the only man to overthrow the Republic sober. Okay. (laughs) I like that quote. I like the impression that people overthrow the Republic like all the time. Well, in the years before Caesar's civil war, there had quite recently been a civil war in which another man, Sulla, had also made himself dictator of Rome. Sulla was definitely accused of being a drunkard. Sulla's a very interesting figure who did have a significant male lover. That's true. We could do an episode on Sulla. Yeah, I'll be hosting that one, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Caesar's political enemies could have chosen to attack him on any number of false grounds if they wanted to, but they almost universally decided to attack him for his relationship with Nicomedes. It seems to be in line with this argument that people who argue that Caesar did have a relationship with Nicomedes choose to argue this. Basically, there were so many rumours that there must have been some truth to it. I mean, yeah, but the truth to it could just be he was in Bithynia for, like, an extra week. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And also, I think that the no smoke without fire argument is a bad one to bring to ancient Rome. Ancient Roman sources are, like, insane. They list all kinds of stuff that is definitely false, and everyone knows they're false. Everyone from me to Suetonius knows that they're false. (laughs) That's true, that's true. And they are very petty and very into personal attacks on their political enemies. Like, there is one paragraph in, I think, Suetonius, where it says that Nero had sex with married Roman women, freeborn Roman boys, vestal virgins, his mother, (laughs) and then it gets onto stuff that maybe was true that we'll talk about because it's gay but like no smoke without fire i guess you know like... yeah no smoke without fire i would say is not a very solid argument and i would also say the obvious answer to why they chose nicomedes of bithynia as their attack as opposed to caesar's a drunkard or caesar spends too much money on fancy furniture or all the other things that romans <laughs> like to attack each other on because it's impossible to prove what happened in a bedroom in bithynia decades ago there's no way to disprove that whereas if someone says caesar's a drunkard then people can say well i've never seen caesar drunk yeah yeah unfortunately it remains impossible to prove what happened in a bedroom of Athena. it does interestingly although i mentioned he was very angry when his soldiers brought up this rumor caesar didn't always attempt to dispel these rumors there is one instance where he threatened to quote mount on the heads of his enemies what <laughs> when he was granted governorship of gaul this is what he said he was going to do to the gauls what did that mean it's basically a rape threat. And Bibulus responded that that would be difficult for a woman. Bibulus regularly referred to Caesar as the Queen of Bithynia, 
and calling him a woman is obviously a reference to that insult, which Bibulus liked. Rather than taking offence at the reference, Caesar answered that the famous Semiramis had been queen of Syria and that the Amazons had ruled most of Asia, so it shouldn't be a problem. Basically what that is is, huh, you're a lady. And he's like, yeah, hot butch lady. (laughs) (laughs) And Bibbles is like, I'm going home. (laughs) I'm going to bed for six months. (laughs) I'll be at my punk. (laughs) What? No. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) Serious apologies. Okay, let's talk about uh, Caesar embracing his feminine side. <laughs> I mean, so far he's embraced his feminine side in order to keep his rape threat viable, so <laughs> I, like, don't love it. No, no. Caesar was also attacked by his opponents for being quite fastidious about his appearance and quite effeminate in his dress. According to Plutarch, Cicero wrote... When I look at the way Caesar's hair is arranged with such nicety, I cannot think that this fellow would ever conceive of such a great crime as the overthrow of the Roman state. Weird how he overthrew the Roman state, then. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, when was this said? It's a quote from Plutarch of Cicero, so it's not like a specific letter of Cicero that we have that's dated or anything. Suetonius also tells us that Caesar wore his tunic long with uh, long fringed sleeves. That sounds quite nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This was a fashion which had come from Greece and which was considered to look like women's dress. It was quite fashionable at the time in some groups, but the senatorial elite considered it to be unmanly and unroman, and they went out of their way to avoid dressing in this manner. Cato, for example, wore only a short toga and he didn't even wore a tunic underneath it to try and avoid it as much as possible looking like he was wearing a woman's dress. That's that's Guess so that's very inappropriate. Like I don't even know what to say. I guess clothes might be feminine. You just won't wear clothes at all. That's the only way out. Yeah, that's basically That's very funny. Traditionally, like hundreds of years before Caesar, Romans didn't wear tunics under their togas. They just wrapped themselves in a sheet, basically. They just walked around nude with a bed sheet around them. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm just getting out all of the energy I couldn't get out tutorials for, like, four years. <laughs> so Julius Caesar is wearing a nice dress and... A ni- no, it's like a tunic. A okay. tunic with long sleeves. It's not a dress, as I was just about to discuss. So in his uh, pop history book, In Bed with the Romans... Oh, I'm, I'm aware of these books. Yeah, this book is, is a time. Yeah, these books are ludicrous. I enjoy them very much. <laughs> Please don't read them. <laughs> So Paul Crystal, the author of In Bed with the Romans, describes this tunic and also Caesar's tie in Bithynia as instances where Caesar was cross-dressing. In Bithynia? Well, the tunic he wore later in life in his political career, but he also says that Caesar was cross-dressing in Bithynia. Okay. Why was he cross-dressing in Bithynia? I think that Paul Crystal has misinterpreted him being said to have played the feminine role in bed to have just kind of played a feminine role in general. Oh, okay. So Paul Crystal just did not understand how like Roman sexual mores were. Paul Crystal, I can assure you, does not have basic reading comprehension. <laughs> okay. Um, we're really think, not very nice this episode. Quality dragging in this episode. <laughs> yeah, um, in one interview that I listened to with Paul, he claimed that this had been erased from how we talk about Caesar because it didn't fit with the image of Caesar we have as this, you know, manly general who took over Rome. That's probably a decent point. Actually, mm. yeah. yeah. Okay, mm. cool. I don't okay. know. Do we accept that Caesar was? I guess we do accept that Caesar was like feminine. I don't know how much that's in the popular mind, though. Yeah, no. I mean, like, I was gonna say if we accept that that is true and not propaganda against him, because obviously, if we think of it as propaganda against him, mm. we shouldn't just incorporate it into our understanding of him. I'm willing to accept that what they said about his dress wasn't propaganda because i feel like it's hard to tell lies yeah, about the length of someone's tunic sleeves yes. yeah so we can all see Caesar's tunic <laughs> but yeah there's nothing in suetonius's account of his time in bithynia to suggest that caesar was dressed as a woman while he was there and the long sleeve tunic which suetonius mentions is specifically a senatorial tunic so that's something that was only worn by men since only men can be senators so i'm afraid that paul's claims of cross-dressing are wrong i mean 
I guess you at least have kind of a, you could have a loosely plausible claim of a vaguely gender-bending senatorial tunic. So it's less like if Scott Morrison wore like a Hillary Clinton-style pantsuit mm-hmm. and more like he wore one of those like really nicely sort of slightly fashionable tailored suits that some men are still like, oh, that's a bit gay for me. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. It's more like that. It's men's dress, but it's men's dress that's considered, you know, a bit effeminate and a bit too nice for a man. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Adrian Goldsworthy, who we dragged before, but who I'm about to agree with. <laughs> <laughs> Scholarship. Hi. How it is. Um, yeah. Adrian Goldsworthy's season Caesar's dress, a deliberate attempt to set himself apart from his conservative opponents, men like Cato, who I've mentioned. In presenting himself in opposition to the image of the traditionally masculine conservative Roman, Caesar may have been connecting to his more populist supporter base, which would largely have been made up of people from the provinces, including people from these eastern provinces like Greece and so forth, where some of these fashions did come from, and in that way actually strengthening his image and his power base in Rome. This is, like, not about the queer stuff at all, but Caesar, the idea of, like, Caesar appealing to, like, the new immigrant population is just quite alien to my conception of Caesar. Yeah, and I guess Paul Crystal's right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Caesar was all about the new immigrants. Caesar made so many people citizens, just like so many people. So those comments about his general more effeminate presentation and his potential relationship with Nicomedes are the two main things that have led people to suggest Caesar may be queer in some way. So now I'm going to end our episode with the question... Do you think he was queer? I do have some things to say here in that I feel it's worth noting that you sort of started this episode by saying, yeah, look, all Roman men sleep with men. Mm-hmm. That's not what's going to make Julius Caesar queer. No, sleeping with a man in the active role is totally the norm. Sleeping with a man in the passive role is not. So you could argue that taking the passive role is queer, perhaps. Yeah, but taking the active role is not. I don't know. And then you also, like, we do end up in this weird space where we don't really have the sources to clarify, but also you have to start deciding, even assuming that Julius Caesar was, you know, more feminine than the norm, what level of, like, gender divergence is queer? That's true. Like, can we really ask the question, you know, was Julius Caesar effeminate enough to be queer? (laughs) That, that's a weird question. <laughs> I don't feel I really have the, either the information or the kind of desire to pin down a boundary there. Mm. And I don't think that's something you can answer from, say, looking at how long the sleeves on someone's tunic are. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> it depends what was going through Caesar's head. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. because of Caesar's own writing being so impersonal and about, you know, his military conquests and why he felt he was right in the Civil War, we don't really know what was going through Caesar's head when he put on his tunic in the morning. Mm. And I think the Adrian Goldworthy's argument that it was a political decision to kind of set himself apart is also a pretty solid one, given that we know, for example, how Cato dressed himself and tied that to his conservative political identity. How Cato did that. not dress himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I mean, I think once you get into this ancient history, it isn't so much useful to say was so-and-so queer, but just mm. to say, is this of relevance to us regarding sexuality and gender? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, yes. I mean, we, just, we decided Caesar was worth talking about. Mm. Mm. Look, I've honestly found it very enlightening just in terms of my image of Caesar was that very, like, sort of masculine military. You know, you started before, and I don't know if it's on the tape or not, you started before talking about this party you were at where some guy walked up to you and was like, I love the Romans of the British Empire. And that's very much, like, where Caesar fitted in my head. And so it's been enlightening in terms of just kind of divorcing Caesar from this, like... Sort of modern hypermasculinity. Mm, mm. And Caesar was not hypermasculine. He did embody some aspects of Roman masculinity. So there are, you know, many stories about him being very brave in war, being a very successful commander. He didn't eat or drink in excess. He was very frugal in that way. And all these are masculine Roman traits. On the other hand, he dressed quite effeminately. Suetonius mentions that he 
plucked all the hair from his body. <laughs> oh, really? Like, plucked? Yeah, so Tony says, like, he didn't just shave, he plucked. Dedication. Oh, that but, sounds awful. Like, that thing had to be pretty manly to take tweezers to your scrotum. <laughs> You've made me curious now. What's the general position of Romans on body hair and gender and sexuality? <laughs> I know this is a very big question. So, basically, a Roman man was expected to be neat in his presentation. You know, you didn't want necessarily a huge amount of body hair, though that could be considered quite masculine. It could also be considered a bit uncivilized. But you didn't pluck all your hair. So it was a balance. Did women shave their hair, though? Uh, Women did shave, I believe. Okay. And some men definitely did shave, but it wasn't considered the manly thing to do. Part of my mind just kind of went to, you know how often, like, male cyclists will shave their legs because they feel that it makes them more streamlined? It made the centurions march faster. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's where my mind was. Like, my chariot will go faster. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I just love the idea of her, like random Roman soldier being like, oh, well, I'm going off to war tomorrow. Time to shave my legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite good. It is quite good. It is quite good. But yeah, I think um, Paul Crystal did have a point about kind of the bits of seas that don't fit with our modern masculine image are erased. Mm. Or at least like very much kind of downplayed. Well, downplayed. They're not what is normally talked about. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you want to find more of our episodes, you can find us on Podbean, Spotify, or iTunes, or whatever podcatcher you use. If you do find us on iTunes, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave us a review, because that really helps us to reach a wider audience. We'll be back on the 1st of February when I'll be talking about the queer activist and drag king Stormy Delavier. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.